0: Uh, It is a privilege and an honor to be here as part of your body. We are excited for what God is doing and how he has brought us here. Um, But first of all, I just want to say good morning. (laughs) And I hope that everyone was able to enjoy a good Thanksgiving weekend. And over the last several days, most likely you've been involved in something uh, of one kind or another that has given you a reason to give thanks As Pastor Mark said, he and his family had three of these, but big meals and great desserts. For the kids, they were able to have no school for a few days. And for the parents of those kids, we can be thankful that they have school starting tomorrow. (laughs) Perhaps we're able to visit with relatives that we don't get to see very often. Some of you were able to find great bargains by going to the doorbusters at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., And you found some great deals uh, as far as Christmas was concerned. Some of you were able to sleep in and find those exact same great deals at 10 (laughs) a.m., which is is a nice thing. We had one thing that came up and we're like, oh, that is a really good deal. We're going to get up. I got up at 4.45 to get to Target, was there for half an hour looking for all the items that we needed, and then I stood in line for an hour and a half. So it's crazy getting out there. Some of us may have our shopping already done, and we can say, thank you, praise the Lord. And perhaps our Christmas decorations are all put up, and we can just sit back and and just bask in in seeing them and how pretty everything looks this time of year. Now, some of you may not have had as great of a Thanksgiving holiday, and um, here are a few interesting ideas that may help you for next year. Um, During the middle of the meal, perhaps you can turn to your mom, and you can say, see mom? I told you they wouldn't notice that the turkey was four months past its expiration date. You were worried for nothing. Or if you need to add a little spice to your Thanksgiving, maybe you can, when everyone is going around and saying what they're thankful for, maybe you can say, I'm thankful I didn't get caught. And then don't say anything else the rest of the meal. Maybe... If you're tired of the normal, traditional Thanksgiving fare and the food that comes with it, maybe you can take what's on your plate, go into the kitchen, blend it all up, and then bring it back and say that this is the new shake and it's the new Thanksgiving weight loss program. But in seriousness, when we sit down and we think about Thanksgiving and what this means, we have much to be thankful for. I think we can all agree with that, that as believers in Christ it's this thankfulness which propels us into worship. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. It propels us into worshiping our God and our Savior. And in kicking off the Advent Conspiracy series, uh, we're going to look at worship and worshiping fully a little bit. And as I think about worship, I've been part of a worship team for a number of years and, and led that team for a few years. And so worship is something that Is near and dear to my heart, that that music, that expression that we have. But I find that we kick around the concept of worship in many different ways. As we gather together on Sunday mornings, many churches call that the worship service. Or during our services, and we, we had one ourselves, we had a time of singing or the time of music, which we commonly call the worship time. And we call those that lead us during that time worship leaders or worship ministers. Many of us have CDs or songs loaded on our iPods, our computers, our MP3s that we consider worship music. So we have all of these different ways that we use worship, but what does that really mean? What is worship to us? So today we're going to take a look at two examples from the story of Christ's coming, hopefully to gain a little bit of a better understanding of what worship is, maybe some perspectives on worship. So if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you today in the pews in front of you, there should be one, unless someone has taken it for their own personal use, which is good as well. But Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. So a quick recap of this story is that we have the Magi who have come from the east, an eastern country, in search of the king of the Jews. As their initial question indicated, they were looking for the one who was born a king. He did not have to ascend to that place. He did not have to do anything. He was born a king. They knew this through the prophecies that they had heard uh, given by Daniel. And in verse 2, they stated that after they saw his star, they started to follow after it. They did not just find this to be a normal star, that, ooh, that's pretty, let's follow that star. Or it wasn't just an interesting astronomical occurrence. They attributed this star to him. The one born, the king of the Jews. And this star was the sign to them that the Messiah had come. So because of this, they came to worship him. And I think this leads us into one perspective that we can have regarding worship. That we worship him because of who he is. As a newborn baby, Jesus had done nothing to deserve this worship. Yet they crossed field and fountain, moor and mountain, following this yonder star, Shall we sing it? In order to worship this newborn baby, okay, they came just to worship a baby, this baby Jesus, who they knew through the prophecies was to be the king of kings. So they came just to worship him because of who he was. It did not matter to them that he had done nothing. They knew the prophecies about his coming, and now that Jesus had come, they were determined to worship him because he was the Messiah. And I find this one of, at least for me, one of the greatest reasons for worship is just knowing that God is God, that God is who He says He is, and because of that, I can worship Him. In worship, we can recognize who God is. In worship, we attribute to God His true worth. We begin to have that perspective, we begin to have that focus to say, God, you are above all. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, the words that are translated as worship have a connotation of prostrating ourselves, of humbling ourselves, of bowing down, perhaps of crouching, perhaps of falling flat on the floor in worshiping Him. And it's through that act of worship that we, by us making ourselves low, we exalt Him. And we say, you are God, and we are in your presence, and we're going to worship you. We humble ourselves and put him on his rightful throne of glory. As we've kicked off the fall in the Crossroads Youth, Crossroads Youth, we've taken a couple weeks where we've watched some videos that have been put out by Louis Giglio. He's the head of uh, Passion Ministries, which really aims at the college-age students. And he goes around and he speaks on, on different topics, And we've watched two videos, one being called Indescribable and one being called How Great is Our God? And during those videos, he mentioned that we need to right-size our view of God. And I think that is so important that we need to remember how great and awesome and huge our God is. So many times we try to bring him down to our level and say, you know, God, can you do this for me? Or, God, you know, let's let's be friends. And there is that aspect of it where we can have that friendship, we have that relationship with Him, but we also need to remember, remember how great and awesome He is. We need to realize that He is huge. A common term you hear today is today is He is ginormous. And. I hope that I'm not bursting any one of your bubbles, but we're not. We're, we are definitely not ginormous in any ways. So I want you to consider the verse in Psalm 19, which states, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And in Isaiah 40:12, it speaks of God, and it asks some rhetorical questions of the people of Israel. And it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens so taking a cue from these videos that we've watched I want to illustrate how ginormous our God really is so hopefully on the screens we can get a few slides just to give us a little perspective the first one that we will see is of our planet Earth our planet is about 25,000 miles if you go around it. If you go straight through the middle, it's about 8,000 miles just from one end to the other. So you know, you always thought, hey, can I dig a hole to China? As a little kid, well, it'd take 8,000 miles to get there. Might take a little while, lots of hand shovels and and things like that, and we'd have to see how successful you are at that. Our planet holds over six billion people, and we are one of them. The Earth, we're pretty familiar with in general. We've seen multiple pictures of our globe. We've seen them as things that twirl around on a little pedestal in school. We've seen photos of them perhaps even on, on uh, YouTube or any other sites. And then 93 million miles away is our sun. It's the star that is the central hub of our solar system. The the sun itself is about 2.7 million miles around. And to go straight through the sun, it would be about 865,000 miles. So if you take a comparison, the sun is 2.7 million miles around. The earth is 25,000 miles around. I like the illustration that Louis used in one of the videos. He said, if the earth were the size of a golf ball, the sun would be... 15 feet in diameter okay so I don't have the span to do 15 feet but let's just say it's larger than this caught a fish this big so 15 feet in diameter and within the sun then and how it's kind of dancing up there isn't it within the sun we could fit 960,000 of our planet Earth's within the sun itself. I think that gives us a little perspective that planet Earth is not as big as we always think that it is, that our lives are not as big as God. If we go out from there, we know that the sun and our solar system is part of the galaxy known as the Milky Way. The Milky Way contains our solar system and at least 200 billion other stars and their planets. That's a lot of stars, a lot of bright lights. You thought your your house was decorated for Christmas nicely. It's easy for me to say. The Milky Way is about 100,000, there we go. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years in diameter. Okay, so when we talked about the sun, we talked about the earth, we were talking in the term miles. Now we're talking about the term light years. So one light year is 5.88 trillion miles. Okay, so now we're talking about the Milky Way, that's 100,000 light years. I love numbers, as a CPA, that's a big number. I don't see that come across my desk any day, but that's a big number. And as we see here in this slide, they estimate that that's about where our sun and our solar system is. It's barely a blip on the radar in the overall Milky Way galaxy. And it's also interesting to note that we're not even at the center of our own galaxy. How we used to think the sun revolved around the Earth, well, we found that isn't true. We also find that the Milky Way galaxy doesn't revolve around our solar system. We're just spiraling around with the other 200 billion stars in our galaxy. Yet, it's a comfort to know that our God is the one who created this vast galaxy and many more. We're going to go through a few more slides just to show you the creativity and the grandeur of our God. This next one is the Helix Nebula. But it's interesting to see as we go out. Yes, as we and the, the difficult thing that I had was narrowing down the cool things that are out there in space. Just so here's the Helix Nebula. What a beautiful picture! It's almost like an eye kind of looking at you. Or the next one, which is called the Spirograph Nebula, and it. How many of you ever had the game or the little art thing as a kid that was called spirograph and you did the little things like that? Did you ever get a shape that came uh, kind of came out like this? God is just so creative. He has pulled everything together in such an interesting way. We can get ready for the next one. Um, but God has formed all of these things. Now, the Helix Nebula is about 700 light years away, still in our galaxy. That spirograph nebula is about two thousand light years away, and now we've got the cat's eye nebula. Just all the, the gases and the, the the dust formations that are going around this star. Just interesting to see how great our God is. There's also the our nearest neighbor in the galaxy world called the Andromeda Galaxy. And That is about 2.2 million light-years away. So we're beginning to move out, and we can see that God has pulled all of this together, and he has formed each thing in unique ways. After the Andromeda galaxy, we can go out to the Sombrero galaxy. It's about 28 million light-years away. Okay, So we talked about the Milky Way galaxy being 100,000 light-years, and that's a really big number. The Sombrero galaxy is 28 million light-years light-years away. 28 million times 5.88 trillion. Again, a huge number. And finally, we come to the whirl- Whirlpool Galaxy. This is 31 million light-years away. Again, 31 million times 5.88 trillion miles. And we are just beginning to see the far reaches of the known universe. And our God has created all of this and he holds it in the breadth of his hand. As a kid we used to sing he's got the whole world in our hands or in his hands. He's got more than just our world. He has the entire universe known and unknown and yet he still sees each one of us. He knows each one of us by name. He knows the very hairs that are on our heads And I know that I used to have a lot more than I do now. God doesn't need my help, but apparently I'm making it a little easier on him. So he is great and awesome when we contemplate all this. So it gives us a reason to worship him. If we didn't have one before, we can look and see how great our God is. There's also another reason for worship. And in the story of Christ's birth, we see another group that worships the Christ child. So as you turn to Luke chapter 2, we're going to take a look at the story of the shepherds. We're going to start at verse 8. And it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, began to praise and glorify God because of what they had seen and because of what they had heard. They witnessed and experienced the work of the Lord in their lives. The angels gave them the good news of great joy, giving them specific details. You will find a babe wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And this is the one who was promised. They went and saw it, and it was just as they had been told. And because of this, they believed that God had truly sent his son to earth as the Messiah. They worshipped and glorified God because of what he had done. So I find this is another reason that we can worship God. Sometimes as we think about different things, we just have to think about what he's done in our own lives. We can see the hand of God at work in our own lives. Perhaps you've seen his faithfulness through the storms and trials of life. Perhaps you've witnessed his healing hand in your life or the life of a loved one. Maybe you felt the comfort and peace of his spirit when you had the stresses of life piling up. I know in my own life, I can look back to my teenage years and see God's hand of protection and provision on my family. For the first 14 years of my life, I was the pastor's son. I moved with my family several times as we went to different churches. We went into different states. Shortly before I turned 14, though, we left the church that we were at, and we didn't have another church to go to. So we had uh, to move in with my aunt and her family. So there are five of us in my family, and we joined with the four of them, and they were expecting their fifth. So my I was 14, my sister was 11, my brother is 8, and they have four-year-old twins and a, a new baby coming on the way. What we initially thought would be a couple weeks stay turned into a 10-month living arrangement. I got to share a room with my twin cousins, which as a 14-year-old getting to bunk with four-year-old twin cousins, it's an interesting experience. Yes, it's an interesting experience. But I know that even though that was a hard time in our lives, I can look back now and I can see God's hand of provision in our lives. He provided a home that could be a roof over our heads. He provided food for my family and my eyes so that I could be relatively well nourished. Um, I had a bunk, you know, to put my head on. And because of that, I can look back at what he's done and it gives me a reason to continue to trust and worship him. And beyond those types of physical provisions and blessings that God gives us, we need to remember the great things that Christ accomplished on the cross. Colossians 2 describes several of these accomplishments. He says that our sinful nature was buried with Christ when Christ was laid in the tomb. And yet we've been raised with Christ just as he was raised from the dead. God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. He canceled and took away the written law that was standing against us and kept accusing us of our sin. He disarmed the evil powers and authorities that continue to hold us captive. So like the Magi and the shepherds, we have reasons to worship our God and our Savior. We can look at who God is and we can worship Him because of that. We can look at what He has done and we can worship Him because of that. So what now? How do we worship Him? How do we worship Him fully as, we've been, as we're kicking off the Advent conspiracy? One way I think it comes to mind for most people is that we can worship Him through song, through music. This is something that I enjoy. I love that God has given us the gift of music to then return back to Him and worship Him, to lift up our voices, to clap our hands, to sing praise to our God. We can use that music to worship Him. We can dwell on His majesty. We can contemplate the things that He has done in our lives. The Psalms continually encourage us to sing praise, to give thanks, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. We can worship and we can bow down before the Lord our God. We can clap our hands. We can play the stringed instruments and the cymbals. We can dance before the Lord. There are many ways to worship Him through music. And as we worship him in song, we invite his presence to be in our midst. We begin to focus on God and and realize how great and how awesome he is. And we see, I'm not so big as I sometimes think I am. Yet, as I considered the concept of worship fully, I thought, I have to remember that it's more than just music. I have to remember that worshiping God is not all about coming here at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, being part of the service, and singing to God and, and taking in the Word for that hour and a half to two hours. Today it'll be three. <laughs> no, it won't. We have to remember that whether we worship the Lord during those times or not, that it's more than that just that time. We must worship him not with just my lips, but my whole life. I have to give my life now unto Christ as worship. Ephesians 1.12 describes how we who hope in Christ are now to live for the praise of his glory. We are to be the, that object that brings him praise and glory and honor. Day by day, we can do that by the way we live out our lives. And I don't want to get to the place where I'm like the people of Israel who were described in Isaiah 29, 13. There it says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I don't ever want to be a person who just comes up, does worship, and whether I'm good, bad, or otherwise, I don't want to be just one who raises my voice to worship him, but goes out and lives my life completely contrary to that. So in order to worship fully, we must heed, I think, the guiding principle that Paul laid out in Colossians 3, verse 17. There it says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in every action we must take, or we take, We must do that thing which brings glory to his name. In each word that we speak, we should say the things that most represent Christ in our lives. As we spoke about earlier, worship is an act where we prostrate and we humble ourselves. We make ourselves less so that he can become greater. By humbling our self-nature, we exalt, we glorify, we promote the God of the universe. This isn't always easy, and it's not something that we always want to do. It may not be fun. We get confronted with situations in life that make it difficult sometimes to say, God, you are God. We've been wronged, and sometimes we want to make it right by our own actions, rather than allowing the God of the universe, who has everything orchestrated and is working everything out, to take control. And it's here that worship can become a sacrificial act. We may have to consciously and perhaps violently destroy that self-nature that wants to rise up so that we can have our way, so that we can do what seems right to us. It may be a struggle to take the action or speak the words that would glorify God rather than satisfy that self-nature. In a devotional book by Barbara Rainey, titled, Moments With You, she writes this. Make the choice today to take your eyes off yourself and your circumstances, gratefully acknowledging who God is and what he is doing. Deny yourself the right to complain, embracing instead the deep-seated joy of thanksgiving in all things. This is something that I continue to struggle with. For myself as well. My parents, um, after 34 and a half years, decided that they had had enough. So a year and a half ago, they uh, separated. Um, My mother moved out to North Dakota, which is where she was born and raised, in in September of, of last year. And it Actions like that make it very difficult to sometimes remember that God is God, that He is on the throne. Their divorce became final this year, in in March of this year, and it's a difficult thing, and I was talking with uh, Suzanne this morning, it's a difficult thing, even though I am 35, to be the child of a divorce. It doesn't matter how old you are, it's hard. Everything that you knew has totally been changed but I have to remember and the thing that carried me through that was to know that God is God that it didn't matter what was going on in that circumstance and that was hard God knew that it was hard he saw that it hurt but he's still God he holds all of the universe in the palm of his hands and yet He sees me where I'm at. He sees that hurt. So I tell you all this to say the choice is ours. The choice is ours. We can choose to worship him fully, and that might be through music, might be through our actions, it might be through our our deeds or our words. Or we can choose to only go part way. Or maybe not at all. So during these weeks that lead up to Christmas, I encourage you to renew your desire to worship Him completely. Begin to meditate on who God is. Not worrying about what your circumstance is, but remember who God is. And that He who created the universe left His glory and He came down to be in our midst. And that's where it all began that we could have that relationship with Him. Start to remember the things that God has done in your life. It might be little things. It might be great and marvelous things. But know that God has done great things in your life. Then then hopefully our response is that we'll bring Him worship and the worship that He deserves. Maybe it's worshiping Him directly by giving Him thanks and praise. And that could be with a song or it could be without a song. Maybe you're going through your house and you're vacuuming along and you just say, thank you, Lord, that I have a house that I can vacuum in and a vacuum that works. But maybe it goes even further and we worship Him with how we conduct our daily life. And as we begin to wrap up this morning, I want to read an excerpt from a sermon entitled, That's My King. This was delivered by Evie Hill. He's a pastor out in Los Angeles. And hopefully today we can remember who our king is and that now we'll be able to offer him the worship that he truly desires. So here's what he said. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder if you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's entirely secure. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. That's my king. Do you know him? He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. That's my king. That's my king. Do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. That's my king. That's my king. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That's my king. Do you know him? I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave could not hold him. That's my king. That's my king. So can we stand together as we close today?